Before I read our second lesson, will you pray with me? Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our second reading comes from the Old Testament book of Ruth. This is the very start of Ruth, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 and going through verse 18. So listen again for a word from the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. These sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. Then Naomi kissed them, and they all wept aloud. The women said to Naomi, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was a hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then the women wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth, Ruth clung to her. So Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Well, if you've been 
coming to the Five at First regularly this fall, or perhaps you've been following along with the sermons online on our website, you'll notice that this story of Ruth is the third of what I would consider to be a really classic Old Testament story. A few weeks back, we heard the story of Esther, the Jewish woman who goes into a foreign land, becomes queen, and saves her people from genocide. And then two weeks ago, we heard the story of Job, a faithful, wealthy man who suffers deeply and who hears the voice of God speak to him out of the whirlwind. And now this week, we hear a third story. And I say story because I love stories that I can get through quickly, that I can read. I have very short attention when it comes to reading books. And these books, I can read through. They have action. They have plot. They have these great characters. They have these personalities that just sort of pull you into the story. And Ruth is another one of these. So before we even meet Ruth in the passage we just read, we meet Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, and their two sons. Now Naomi and her family are originally from Bethlehem and Judah, so they're Jewish. But because of political instability, there's a line early on in that, that's, that notes that this family is living in the days of the judges. Now judges, if you open up your Bible, comes before kings, which Many of us might be familiar with a very famous king in the Old Testament being King David. The judges happen before the kings. And the judges are a more tumultuous time. There's a lot of turnover in leadership. There's unrest. There's violence. So they're living during this uncertain time in Bethlehem. And not only that, there's a famine. So they don't have food. They don't have any sort of economic security. Naomi and her family. And so they leave. They leave their homeland and they go across borders to this foreign land called Moab. I visited the Middle East this summer and this is not an easy journey that this family takes. Bethlehem is in modern day Israel and to get to Moab you go down into this great rift valley that comes from Africa all the way through the Middle East. And you go down to the lowest point on earth, and you walk past the Dead Sea, and it's hot down there. And then when you get to the other side, you climb up the other side of the Rift Valley to get back to sea level. And then when you kind of come to the top of what looks like a mountain when you're at the bottom, you see this vast area of plains. And these are the Moabite Plains. They're in modern-day Jordan today. It looks like you're in Nebraska when you're in this place, because there is food there. It seems to me that Naomi and her family made the right choice by going to Moab if they were in search of food. But once they get there, everything seems to go wrong. First, Elimelech dies, and then Naomi's two sons. They take wives, but before they have any children, her two sons die also. And this might seem like a minor detail for us today, but in these times, children meant security. They meant a future for your family name. They meant that you would have young children who would grow up into adults and could do the work to get money, to get food. It meant security. But Naomi's sons die. There's no grandchildren. So she's left living in a foreign land, far from her home, no husband, no grandchildren, no future. She only has these two foreign daughters-in-law. And off they go. I imagine, Naomi, for all these reasons I just listed, 
I imagine her when we meet her in this passage, when we're on this road back to Bethlehem. She's at a very dark point in her life. I sense a lot of suffering. I sense a lot of uncertainty about what her future holds. I think she's lonely. She's lost everything. And then we meet this character, Ruth, who our book is named after. And I don't say it this way to make it seem like once Ruth talks towards the middle of our passage, all of a sudden the gray skies part and sun comes out, birds start chirping, the flowers come out of the ground. If you keep reading in Ruth, in fact, you find that the hard times really continue for some time after this. But what we do find in the exchange between Ruth and Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, I think I'm saying that right, or that's what I'm going with, and Naomi, what we find in this exchange between these three women on the road back to Bethlehem is what I think is God's response to our very human sense of unworthiness. To me, Naomi feels unworthy. Like I've said, she's lost everything. She has nothing to offer her daughters-in-law. She feels unworthy to be followed, even. Do you hear this part in the passage? Three times she tells her daughter-in-laws to go back. She says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? She's effectively saying to them, what is there that I could possibly give you? I have no husband. I have nothing. I have no future. Naomi feels unworthy of these women's devotion to her. She feels unworthy of their love. Have you ever felt unworthy? I remember about three years ago, my wife and I were preparing to move to Atlanta for me to attend seminary. And we went back to her hometown in Southwest Virginia and we were outside one day and the neighbor from across the road who we had talked to a number of times, he's a really friendly guy, he saw us outside and he came across to say hello. And we, we talked with him there for a little bit, some just idle chit-chat, and then he turned to me and he asked, Alan, how's work going? And I told him, well, it's going good, but actually uh, we're going to be leaving our home soon. Aaron and I are about to move to Atlanta for me to attend graduate school. Oh, is that right, he asked. Atlanta, what are you going to be studying down there? Well, I hesitated a little bit. I'm going to be studying theology. Oh, I see. You want to be a man of the cloth, do you? I still remember that phrase. No one had ever put it quite that bluntly for me. Never named what it is I thought myself worthy to become by going to seminary. In my mind... I equated that title, man of the cloth, with some sort of superhuman wisdom, some sort of piety that I knew I did not have. So I was kind of hesitant and a little uncomfortable in the conversation because I suddenly felt so unworthy. I felt unworthy to uproot myself and my family just for me to go to seminary. I felt unworthy to take a call. So in this very awkward exchange, I sort of hemmed and hawed, well, yeah, I guess, sort of, I don't really know. I like to think we're all of the cloth, kind of. (laughs) 
like Naomi, I wanted to turn him back. I wanted to make sure that he knew that I am simply not worthy of that title and role. Unworthiness. It's a sense, a feeling, that I think we've all encountered at some point on our journeys. But then we meet Ruth. There's this Hebrew word that's used over and over in the original text of this book, and it's chesed. It's, got that, it's like the only word I remember from Hebrew. It's got that hard C-H sound, chesed. And it can be translated any number of ways, but it generally means faithfulness or steadfast love. And Ruth's reply in the face of Naomi's pleas for her just to go home, to me embody chesed. Listen again to what Ruth says. She says to Naomi, do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if even death parts me from you. In the face of Naomi's own profound sense of unworthiness on that path. Ruth looks into her face and names her as being worthy. And what an unlikely character to be about this work. For one thing, Ruth is a woman. You know, we spend a lot of time in Scripture hearing the stories from the voices and perspectives of men, but in this story, if you'll notice, Elimelech and the two sons don't say anything. This whole opening passage is just the voices of women. Second, Ruth is a widower. Like Naomi, Ruth has nothing, not one thing to offer but herself. And as if that isn't enough stacked against Ruth, she's a foreigner. And not just a foreigner, she is a Moabite. She's a foreign enemy to Israel. And so I think, too, when we take into account that Ruth, of all people, is the one showing Naomi steadfast love, reveals to us something important about God's steadfast love for us. It reveals that the God whom Ruth abandons, everything to follow, Naomi, is a God of the lowly. It reveals that it is God of the foreign of the enemy even, that's a tough pill to swallow. It reveals that the God who Ruth abandons everything for is a God of the unworthy. It makes this radical claim that God's love is for all, that it's not confined to a single nation or ethnic group or even church. It's a love that crosses borders. I realize that this is something that we can sit here and politely nod our heads to, I think. It seems simple enough after all. Yes, God loves us. Okay, we're worthy. But we sit in a world that I think defines our worth in a totally different way. The world tells us that our worth depends on what clothes we wear. It tells us that our worth depends on what groups we go and hang out in. It tells us that our worth depends on what neighborhood we live in. What, how much money we have in our bank account. There's two guys out there this week who I think place particular worth on people who live 
in the states of Ohio and Colorado, the world defines our worth differently. But then we meet Ruth. Ruth's interpretation of our worth is something so radically different and altogether foreign to us today. She invites us to know that God is love, a love that shows up when we least expect it, and a love without conditions. That God simply says to us, you are worthy. Perhaps this is the kind of steadfast love that we heard in our Mark passage as well. The love that commands us to love God and our neighbor with all of our strength, and with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our heart. I want to close with a story that my wife brought home to me today. When we moved down here, she found a job teaching. She's a first grade teacher. And first graders, although cute and cuddly, uh, can also uh, be a handful sometimes, I think. Parents in the room might agree. So Aaron. Aaron came home today, or last week, and shared with me the story of one of our students who had a particularly bad day. And at the end of the day, this little girl brought Aaron a small note. And on the front of the note was written, I love you. And on the back of the note was written, do you love me? And there were two little check boxes beneath that question that said yes or no. It's funny, but it's also a little sad, because how many of us have that same outlook? How many of us feel that our worth, that our ability to be loved, fluctuates from day to day depending on the things we do or do not do? This passage from Ruth offers an unequivocal denial of that mindset. It tells us that we are all worthy of God's chesed. God's steadfast love. It tells us that we do not need to wonder which box is checked. And there's perhaps no better symbol of this than the table, which we're going to come forward to in just a moment. We come to this table as sinners. We come to this table as doubters, as people with questions, as people who sometimes feel unworthy of the grace of Jesus Christ that is offered here. But in the bread and in the cup, that grace, that love is offered nonetheless. So when you come forward to take communion today, may you be reminded, may you know in the bread and in the taste of that juice that you are worthy, that you are worthy to be followed, that you are worthy to be loved and that you are worthy to take that love out into the world and to share it with others along the journey. Amen.